Hello, and welcome to Everything But The Building, a podcast about the people, places, and history behind the profession of landscape architecture. I'm your host, Stacey Brocktrup. Today I'm speaking with Thomas Woltz on a variety of topics and projects from conservation agriculture to public parks and open spaces. His education and wide-ranging projects have taken him all over the globe, giving his work a unique perspective and locally focused foundations. All right, well, thank you for being here today. Could you introduce yourself for me? My name is Thomas Woltz. I am the principal and owner of Nelson Bird Woltz Landscape Architects with offices in Charlottesville, Virginia and New York City with two field offices, one in Houston, Texas, and one in Melbourne, Australia. Awesome. One of the first questions that I always ask is, how did you originally find the profession of landscape architecture? I came to landscape architecture in a fairly indirect route, which I realize is extremely common, the more landscape architects that I get to know over the course of my career. I grew up on a working cattle and tobacco farm in Western North Carolina. So this idea of being on and connected to land over generations was something that was always in my, in my makeup as, a, as an individual. I loved, since I was a kid, I loved buildings and the idea of design. And so uh, with encouragement and support from my parents, I went to college in architecture. I went to the University of Virginia to study architecture. But I also was really interested in history and art. So I continued to do three degrees, one in fine art, one in architectural design, and then one in architectural history. That now seems very logical at the time. It was very confounding to my parents of, can you just pick and graduate and move on and get a job? And, uh, but they were very kind and tolerant. And now I look back at it and I realize every day I use all three of those components as a, as a design mind who cares deeply about history and realizes that the power of our communication lies in our skills to represent those ideas. So the fusion of art, history, and design were there from the start. After graduation, I moved overseas and practiced architecture uh, for a number of years in Italy. I went to school in France and then came back five years later to the United States to do a master's of architecture But it was during that time, living in Venice, Italy, that I realized that the landscape was a more abstract construct than I ever believed previously. Venice has none of the things that I thought the landscape was made of, like meadows and grass and forest and trees and big parks. Uh, Instead, the landscape of Venice, Italy is water and stone and public space and light and echo and mist. And there were all these beautiful and abstract uh, material identities to the landscape that was when it first dawned on me that you could design everything but the building. So the name of this podcast was the epiphany that I had, and it brought me to landscape architecture. So I did a dual master's at the University of Virginia, and I arrived at a really interesting moment where the idea of sustainability and ecology were 
at the heart of the discourse at the University of Virginia. This was 1997, and when I graduated, actually. And it added another component to the things that I was already interested in. So if undergraduate were design, art, and history, graduate school added ecology and sustainability. And so really, I feel that I draw on everything from my education every day. And the professors have been fundamental in shaping the way I approach the world. That's a very intense background of study. (laughs) (laughs) And I I was in civil engineering for two years before landscape architecture, and I thought that was a lot. (laughs) Sounds, (laughs) Sounds like you went all out. But I really appreciate the the description you gave of Venice and how that fits in and how that helped you recognize some of the aspects of landscape architecture because I was there last spring on a solo trip and everything you mentioned, I just pictured different places and it brought me right back and it was great. So I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) So then after getting your master's, where did you go from there? I went straight to work. And that was a life-changing experience in itself. I had, as a professor, an incredibly talented teacher and design thinker and environmentalist named Warren Bird. And Warren and his wife, Susan Nelson, had uh, started a small practice in the, in the mid-80s. And Warren had continued to teach full-time and practice through consultancies uh, with Susan Nelson. And it was about the year before I graduated that Warren hired his first full-time employee. And so as I was about to graduate, he asked if I would be interested in working with them. And it was a very small practice. And I realized that I had met the best design mind I'd ever studied with. And I realized that design is an ongoing education and more time working and collaborating with him would be potentially a really important next step in my career. I didn't realize at the time that it would be my entire career. So here I am 22 years later, 23 years later, and Warren retired uh, seven years ago, fully retired. So I now own the practice by myself, but the work is done as an incredibly collaborative collective of 50 individuals bringing unbelievable talents to the work. And I think with Warren, we were, if we were successful at anything, it was establishing a clarity of mission that our job was to use the tools of design to care for and steward the fragile ecologies uh, that shape our world. I think if I've been able to add greater focus to any part of it, it's probably been through a deep interest in history and culture. Warren was certainly uh, passionately interested about those things, is uh, passionately interested about those things as well. But I think the mission over the past few years has continued to crystallize to really be the exploration of the interaction between culture and ecologies that shape our world. How did an ecology attract human interaction? How did that human interaction transform that ecosystem or ecology? And how did that ecology then work back on the human occupation? So 
the idea that there is an ongoing dance between culture and ecology and the landscape is where is the, the, the field where this plays out. And every piece of land holds stories. And I think that has been the, the gateway to our interest in a lot of difficult stories that often we find have been intentionally covered up. Stories of, of inequity, stories of race, stories of pain and suffering. And often we find that those have either been conveniently lost or intentionally lost or uh, neglected. And so for us, it's part of a moral obligation as designers to interrogate those histories and make space for those histories to be heard again. I think it's important to, to remind ourselves that they, whether we're working in New Zealand, Australia, across the United States, Canada, wherever the project is, it is likely not my story or the story of my staff, but rather our job is to make space for those whose story it is to tell their authentic story and have that a safe, accepting, and contemplative place for their narrative to play out. So our job often, I think, in this kind of work is to set the stage for those narratives of ecology and culture, to protect them, and to stand up for the veracity of the stories in the public realm. Yeah, I feel like that's a very niche portion of landscape architecture that doesn't get highlighted quite enough. There can always be a beautiful way to tell a story about a people or a culture that's taking place in that area. And bringing that to light in your work is a great aspect to have. So then looking at the firm currently, can you share how many projects you guys are working on right now? Uh, We probably have uh, 40 active projects, 40 to 45 active projects. That's a, a difficult question, as you know, as a landscape architect. Some projects last for 15, we have a couple of projects that have lasted 20 years. So they're active, they're not crazy active, but we still uh, engage with those landowners, those park stewards to maintain, sustain, revise. You know, it's really exciting to get to go back to a project you did 20 years ago and be given the opportunity to make revisions, to maybe reprune things, make removals, shift the horticultural narrative as, you know, so much of what we do at MBW is setting in motion a new ecosystem and those need tending. And so we do try to build a strong enough personal relationship with our clients that they want us back over time. And that has been a really satisfying part of this or the personal relationships that we've built with clients, with users, people who come to parks and reach out to us. You know, we make a lot of friends during our public input process. And in a lot of cases, we stay in touch with those people for the long run. So you may have a major project that's on the boards right now going into construction documents. You know, maybe we have seven like that. But we have a lot of others that are in designing the maintenance manual or these longer term dialogues. And some that are just kicking off, just uh, signing contracts right now. 
That's a pretty hefty number, considering you've got 50 people working on it. (laughs) And I think you mentioned that you've had some projects overseas. Is that a large percentage of the work you guys do, or is that very specific projects? The overseas work has varied over the years. Warren led project for the Wulong Panda Reserve in Sichuan, China, and a project in Brazil. More recently, we've had a project for the Aga Khan Center for Islamic uh, Cultural Studies in London. Also in Alberta, Canada, the same client as the Aga Khan Garden in Alberta that is a, a public garden that hosts a safe and pluralistic discourse and is very important to not only the Islamic community, but it's open to all communities to to promote inclusivity and pluralism. The work in Australia and New Zealand is primarily tied to a branch of our practice that we call Conservation Agriculture Studio. And that's where we work with landowners and bring in ecologists, to help us understand the pressures that have been put on the land, large-scale landscapes by agriculture. We then also work with farmers in rebuilding models of sustainable agriculture that also protect and preserve the frameworks of biodiversity within those landscapes. So, for example, one project we've worked on for 20 years, still very active in the office, um, we've so far installed 600,000 temperate rainforest trees to rebuild a ribbon of rainforest along the very depleted coastline, working with regional biologists and restoration ecologists, restored several very endangered species to this landscape. Those have been incredibly gratifying projects, and the, the acreages are exciting because you see the change that it makes in water quality, in birds, uh, soil health, soil biology, productivity of the landscape. And I'm lucky to have lived long enough to see those incredible ecosystems taking root and flourishing. And I think for a lot of the people at Nelson Bird Waltz, that body of work is one that particularly touches our hearts because it is connected to food and how we sustain ourselves. And it's connected to the fragile webs of life that have been so compromised. So I think that work is, is very exciting and gratifying in a particular way. Just like the public park work, which is the majority of our work, is gratifying in a very different way. You know, seeing the public have free, unfettered access to great landscapes is a very exciting aspect. Basically, I love my job. <laughs> really, it sounds like it. <laughs> I really enjoy my job. And I, and I hope that the office I manage is creating an environment where other people love their job as well. That's great to have such a diverse passion for the profession. Well, like you said, it's everything outdoors. There's a yep. lot to do. Um, yeah, the, the day that that name hit me, I was like, oh, that's it. I don't even need to keep thinking about a, new, a name for the podcast. That's it. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And I think I get up pretty energized every morning of the year, in part because there's, there's real urgency for the kind of work landscape architects can do in the world. Things are compromised every day. Cultural stories are lost. 
ecologies are broken, disrupted, and compromised, more that the footprint of humanity is somehow heavier and deeper every day, it feels like. So I sense a kind of urgency to be able to do our work. And I'm grateful for the people that have found us and asked us to do this work for us. But it's not really about us. It's about all landscape architects engaging in every creative way they can possibly imagine to repair and heal the planet that we live on. In some ways, I feel it's our moral obligation, given the insights that we are given in our training, it's almost a, a, a deep obligation to apply them responsibly and well in the stewardship of the planet. So you mentioned through your work that you guys have several different studios, and they sound like they're in pretty niche facets of landscape architecture. Could you explain, I believe you have three different studios, uh, if I read this right, reclamation ecology, conservation agriculture, and post-industrial ecology, is that correct? I would outline the different studios at MBW as the uh, public parks portfolio, which is about 70% of our work, and then the conservation agriculture studio, which is this uh, balancing of restoration ecology with sustainable productive agriculture in very large-scale landscapes. And then uh, post-industrial sites that at this point are qualifying as practically any site, but some of our very large recent projects like the Sunnyside Rail Yards in Queens, New York, and the Hudson Yards are sites that have been for years industrial sites where human beings were not allowed and our work is to adapt those sites after their industrial use or simultaneous to their industrial use. Like the rail yards need to continue. And so adapting those to be a humane landscape that allows the public access to places that were either previously dangerous or consumed with another use. So this idea of adaptive reuse of industrial sites is one that particularly fascinates us. Uh, we've just done, at a much smaller scale than the two projects I mentioned, we've just last year delivered a master plan for a very small park in Asheville, North Carolina, but it was one that I think just for the whole team working on it stole our hearts. It's called Karen Cragnolan Park, and it's a, a, a very small six-acre park on the banks of the French Broad River in downtown Asheville, and a grassroots organization had raised money since the 80s, it's the mid-80s, to purchase land and protect it to build an 18-mile linear park along the banks of the river. So this is an incredible achievement of this grassroots organization called Riverlink. And there was one little parcel that meant they could not complete the river walk. And it was a junkyard where for 60 years, cars had been crushed and stacked and pretty much allowed to drain into the soil. So it was post-industrial, unsafe for human contact with the soil. So the Riverlink organization started a phytoremediation project, planting grasses to take up uh, some of the soil uh, toxins in the surface of the soil. And once it was cleared enough, clean enough that we could access the site, uh, we were hired to begin a master planning process. And so 
18 miles of it is mostly grass and trees. And we thought, what if we could showcase a lot of the plants important to the Native American history of the Cherokee in Asheville, uh, a history that is woefully inadequately represented and told in Western North Carolina. But of course, the land was theirs for 10,000 years before a European uh, settler arrived. So using horticulture as a way to create that space for the, for the story of the Cherokee, as well as encouraging citizen science through a pavilion that was designed by Samsel Architects, who teamed up with us on the project, uh, the local to Asheville. There would be a pavilion where you could take soil quality measurements, water quality measurements, uh, and participate in eBird and iNaturalist. It's a place where families could come and feel like they're participating in the monitoring of the ecosystems that shape Asheville. And so all of the surfaces, except for one small event space, are warm season grass meadow. So it really will stand out as a very different part. But that's just a quick example of how you can take a post-industrial site, remediate the toxins, but also that site can still hold the narratives of, of the deep landscape, a kind of uh, deep regionalism. So uh, that's an example of how, the, how that studio works. That's a really neat way to look at it. That and eighteen miles is no small park space. How how wide is the park in comparison to the length? It's a couple hundred feet wide. It's really a strip along the, okay. along the. It's the kind of the riparian zone, the riparian setback. So not developable in most cases, with very few buildings in it. But you're right, it is a phenomenal feat that Riverlink has achieved over the years. And Karen Craig Nolan is an extraordinary leader. And so when they finally got this last piece, uh, she had retired as the director of Riverlink. And so they decided to name it for her, which is most appropriate. That's awesome. We'll have to make sure we get a link to that project in the show notes. One of your other aspects of work, I think you said, was sustainable agriculture. Can you? Describe a little bit more of what your group does for sustainable agriculture and the types of projects you work on. I think I covered that a little bit with that New Zealand project where we'll, with the Conservation Agriculture Studio, we will work with a large group of scientists. They will come onto the site early on and we'll engage in what we call a bio blitz, a, a deep biodiversity survey where we have scientists representing things like moths, bats, birds, reptiles, invasive plants, native plants, all kinds of individual disciplines. But we get everybody there, if we possibly can, at the same time with the design team. So the design team becomes kind of the helpers to the scientists as they gather data. And what that does is it gives us a kind of uh, health report of the landscape and what are the initiatives we should take on board as designers to improve the biodiversity and that healthy infrastructure of the landscape of agriculture. So often we'll find that a site has been overdeveloped, overgrazed, overtilled, and that we're too close to waterways, too close to wetlands, and the natural infrastructure of biodiversity has been disrupted. So once we have this biodiversity survey, we'll often engage then with farmers 
who know the soils very well of the region, know farming traditions and practices, and work with them to figure out how do we balance what is the, I would say, the natural carrying capacity of that agricultural land. If we're basing production on the values that we're setting forward, that we value water quality, soil biome, soil health, we value biodiversity and native ecosystems. Okay, then how much land is left and what is that soil naturally adapted to? So instead of fertilizing the heck out of it until it could grow absolutely anything, saying, well, this soil is really well adapted to orchards or this is really great for vegetables or this is better as grazing land. And then in developing the enterprises that build on that sort of values-based caring capacity of the land. And then working with the landowners in the ongoing maintenance and the evolution of those landscapes. Because in some of those landscapes, the, the biodiversity is dependent on disturbance. So you want to set fire to it every now and then, which is an interesting discussion. You finish a design project and they love it. And you're like, can we burn it down, please? But, you know, fire is a really important ecology in many, uh, in many ecosystems. And we've just forgotten that. I think with the suburbanization of our country, we're terrified of anything like that happening, but carefully managed fires can happen in very small, small sites. And what they do to um, spur on the growth of a lot of native plants is really important. So, or even like allowing something to get really scraggly and then bush hogging it after five or six years, you know, and then moving that to another area. These, these thickets um, and uh, sort of intentionally neglected places, if you, if you don't uh, start them over, they will become forest and you lose that. So really uh, designing maintenance is a big part of the Conservation Agriculture Studio as well. Gotcha. Do you guys have a touch base with any of the projects that you've worked on in the past to see how productive these agricultural areas have been? Yeah, particularly those projects tend to last a, a very long time. So we never really go away uh, in, in most of them. In one case, we completed a master plan and our sustainable agriculture consultant ended up being hired by the farm to become their head farmer and oversee the implementation of the master plan. So he and I touch base, but it's a really great way to, to assure that things are working harmoniously. That was just happenstance. But yeah, in most of them, we are, we are touching base very often, multiple times a year. Uh, we have, in a lot of different projects, we'll do a, a site visit, you know, call folks up and say, could we come by and just see how things are going, if there are any problems? And, you know, sometimes that's a, a way to lead to more work you know you touch base with them like well actually we were thinking about buying the land across the street and what would we do with it so there have been a few cases where that's actually turned out to sort of unintentionally turned out to be business development yeah it's a perfect way to look at it especially if you liked working with your clients exactly yeah all right now shifting focus towards your larger public parks division could you discuss your viewpoint on designing public open spaces, especially now, knowing how the world has changed in the last few months with COVID-19? Absolutely. Our, I'll, I'll answer the two parts somewhat differently. The, the first is, 
uh, really our process for designing the public landscape is one that I would say really reflects our mission. And it's the mission I started with at the beginning of the podcast of doing this deep research into the ecology that shaped a place. Sometimes that's looking back 50 million years. You know, it's, it's how did this place even form geologically? And sometimes from mineral deposits to salt to erosion patterns, it, curiously, that geologic beginning is often what drew Native American people, colonial settlers. It, it, it really can become the key to why that place has been important for thousands of years. So that, that ecological and cultural research is also at the heart of our process in the public landscape. If that is the framework for what we would capture as stories that we could reveal through the design, we then have the stakeholders. So we need to hear what does the public need or want. And what we've found is our stakeholder engagement has become much more productive when we start with here's what a group of outsiders have learned about this piece of land. And we present, you know, this kind of deep history. And in so many cases, people have never heard those stories before. And in others, they're like, oh, I've got more for you. And it's great to find expertise in the public process. This was particularly evident with the, the, the biggest park we've ever done, which is the Memorial Park in Houston, Texas, that has just been an incredible project with a fantastic engaged client group and they asked for a one-year public input process and we met with over 3,000 Houstonians in that process and that was a terrific experience for you know every meeting we would present whatever we had learned and I seriously after each meeting somebody would come up and say well I have a buddy who's an archaeologist and he knows about this piece of the history of the park. Can I put you in touch? I'm like, yeah, put us in touch. And so we actually started a, a stakeholder committee that was made up of local experts in things like soil and military history and horticulture and warm season grassland establishment. So the public engagement process was incredibly fruitful and that it gave us a, a willing committee of volunteers who really helped shape the process of design. So we had a year of public process and research and then a year of master plan design. And we've been in implementation for three years and have probably seven more, six or seven more years to go. And did I miss it? Did you say how large that park is? It's 1,600 acres, a little under, between 15 okay. and 1,600 acres. No, no big deal. <laughs> In the middle of Houston. Oh, it's a wow, dream. That's amazing. It's I haven't been to Houston park. yet. Oh, you got to go to Houston is incredible. The Cultural Landscape Foundation hosted a symposium there called Leading with Landscape, the Houston Transformation. And they brought in the designers who had designed and built uh, a large public parks in Houston. And it was an incredible who's who of great uh, projects and great design firms. And Houston has really demonstrated a deep uh, visionary commitment to landscape architecture at many, many different scales and across the city and many different communities. So getting 
to work on this one has been a humbling and exciting process from the very start. And again, as you know, as a landscape architect, having a great client is perhaps one of the most important ingredients to a successful project. And this one is interesting because it's made up of a conservancy that is a private organization that's raising funds to protect, restore, and preserve the the park into the long-term future. The city parks, Houston Parks and Recreation Department that owns the land, and then a group of donors and activists and this organization that's kind of unique to Houston. It's a tax increment reinvestment zone, and they're allowed to fund infrastructure projects. So things that are really hard to raise money for in most projects like road improvements or bridges and lighting, big infrastructure stuff like a big pipeline for fire suppression. All of those kinds of utilities things, the tax increment reinvestment zone has stepped in and paid for. So you can do the fundraising for the really fun stuff like ball fields and, you know, a big wetland and a new lake and all the kind of more exciting things. So it's a kind of perfect storm of goodwill and enthusiasm to make it a great project. That's a good partnership to have. Allow the people to fund, like you said, the fun things that they want to use every day, but be able to use that reinvestment money to do the everyday things like utilities. Yeah, and it's it, it has worked well in that case. And I think it's, in this case, it's a very appropriate mechanism because this park is at the very center of Houston. We looked at all the different districts of Houston and tried to calculate how many bus stops this park was from all the different districts. And it really is in the very middle of the, of the city. But we also, for the public process, you know, Houston's, I think, the third largest city in the United States. And with a park in the very center, the likelihood of getting people from the periphery neighborhoods into the middle for public meetings was pretty low. So we worked with the different city council members to take the public meetings out to the, you know, 95% Hispanic neighborhoods and the, all the really diverse neighborhoods all around Houston. We would take the public meetings out and be at a church or a community center or some place that was the hub of their more local community and ask them about the park and how they would use the park and what they wanted to see. So that was... You know, we started out just having the meetings at the park and we realized we're not getting a demographic that really represents Houston. We've got to change this. So after like two, after our second meeting, we're like, hang on, we got to retool. And we met with the different city council members and a a number of them put their hands up as happy to host us in their community centers. So that was a, a great adaptation and learning lesson. It made the process much richer. And did you have a local firm that you were working with? So you had a team in town or was that mostly your firm itself? It was primarily our firm for the master plan. We had uh, engineers, we had a cultural landscape historian, we had a soil scientist, we had a biological uh, sort of data gathering firm. So we had lots of other sub consultants, but we didn't partner for the master plan with a local landscape architect. Okay, gotcha. 
we were there a lot. Over the course of those two years, I was there a full week every other month, pretty much for the whole two years. That was where my question was going. (laughs) It was a huge personal commitment, but also it was well worth it. And I loved every minute of it. You know, I really came to love Houston, and now we have a field office there that's overseeing the construction of Memorial Park. We're also completing the Rothko Chapel restoration and adding some landscape areas to the Rothko Chapel complex. And we're also working on a Ismaili cultural center in Houston as well. So uh, it's a terrific portfolio of projects. And just over the past, I guess, six years, I've made some of the best friends I have in, in Houston. When we start these projects, we really do become part of the community just through loving the work and, and knowing that the best work comes when it captures the voice of the community. Awesome. I'm going to have to make sure I get to Houston. I think that's official. <laughs> it's great. There's so much to see. And projects by so many great landscape architects, both local and from uh, out of state or internationally. I'll have to start making some contacts down there. Maybe I can get down there when everything is opening back up from COVID and go interview someone and check these things out. Moving on to a different project that is a little bit closer to home, literally, for me. You helped design City Garden in St. Louis, which is obviously where I'm living. Could you explain the project for people that haven't been here and what some of the goals were for this project? I will do my best to do that. But the first thing I have to say is that Warren Bird, my former business partner who is retired, he interviewed for that project. He had the relationship with Peter Fisher and the locals in town and oversaw that project from start to finish. So I visited it a number of times. Absolutely love that project. But I was not the design lead and uh, not involved in its permitting and construction and ongoing uh, maintenance. And in fact, they've they've asked us to come and do a small update. So the people from that original team are working on that update now. You know, the the central cross street, looking at what would it be to uh, more fully close that to the public and stitch the park together, which wasn't on the table at first. You know, it's two city blocks with that through street. And now they realize they have to block it off because the, the park is so popular. So um, since other people did it, I can brag on it more than I normally would. But Warren, I, I you know, have watched him present it many times and, like I said, visited it many times. But it really sought to tell the public why St. Louis is where St. Louis is located if that makes any sense, through the design, the materials, the narrative of the site in a way that is never hokey, never pretending it's a natural brook or stream or waterfall, but rather identifying this you know, high rise that with prospect over the, over the Mississippi River is really why this place is where it is where it is and looking regionally at that layered horizontal limestone geology and you know where creeks will come and just cascade down into the mississippi was inspiration for the big reflecting pool and tank that's sort of broken in the middle with the cascade and that long arcing wall 
is really symbolizing the kind of the shift in geology. Uh, it's made of stone that was quarried only a few miles from the site. So it's actually made of St. Louis. And then early on, a partnership was forged with the Missouri Botanic Garden to use their expertise on what would be the most successful perennial shrubs, trees, sources for plants. And then they have the ongoing maintenance contract to care for the park. So then I think another thing very important to Warren and the design team was demonstrating beautiful stormwater management as a feature of the landscape. Instead of hiding it, the hydrophilic plants are used in these long linear basins that take all the stormwater on. <laughs> you know, then it's like, there's also this huge mound at the end that has a walk up around it that is, you know, a, an acknowledgement of the history of the Native American people. And I don't know if you visited the Cahokia Mounds just across the river, but they're so awe-inspiring of the, the, the capabilities and reach of the Native peoples of the region. And so as if that weren't enough, oh, there's also a world-class art collection inside this park, you know, the that um, Peter Fisher had put together and gifted to the city. So it's really a, a, an attempt to connect people to the native plants of their region, the geology, the water, the cultural history, and also be the host to extraordinary works of art. It's a great space. Our office is currently two blocks away, and we're actually moving towards the end of this year, beginning of next year, to the block adjacent to the park. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's um, great. I don't know if you've been there when it's a typical St. Louis day like today where it's 95 degrees, but there are folks who come down with their kids and they, the kids play in the reflecting pool. And when the fountain is going with the little, um, the shoots of the, the water jets. up and yeah, yeah. the jets, and they run around like crazy. It's great to see people out and about in the downtown area where you don't otherwise have any water features. It seems to have been a phenomenal catalyst for change right in the heart of downtown. It's, you know, I think Warren and, and the design team just did a, amazing work. And there again, it was, you know, a city government who really wanted to work with you to make it great. And a visionary individual and donor who wanted to make this incredible gift to, to the city. And unfortunately, you know, he's gone, but his vision was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, it was, it was again, a kind of perfect recipe for success. Right. And actually, that success led to a ULI award in 2011. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think Amanda Burden was leading the Urban Land Institute at that time, and they give a, a, an award for essentially what's sort of the, the, the best new public space for that year. And City Garden won that year. And I know it was probably, for Warren, one of the crowning achievements of his really remarkable design career. And very much deserved. It's, like I said, I can't, I can't speak well enough about that space. It's I can't either because I had nothing to do with it. But I really <laughs> am I'm very proud of the team that did it. <laughs> it actually got finished just before I moved to St. Louis in 2013. So I got to hear all the stories about what it was before. And now being here for seven years, seeing 
the development of the Market Street corridor adjacent to City Garden and leading to the Arch, which the Arch grounds was under construction for probably at least five years, I think. Uh, to, so to see those all play off one another and you can walk through the whole space through Keener Plaza that connects the two of them, it's, it's really bringing a new life to downtown. That's great to hear. That's so exciting. I'll, I'll pass this along to Warren next time I talk to him. He'll be thrilled to hear what you had to say. Yes, please do. All right. So with that, I guess, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about, let listeners know about, about your firm or the work you are doing in general? If I were going to send a message out to the profession, it's to remember that we, through our training, our education, and from the founding of the profession to today, we have a remarkable set of tools that we can carefully apply to create places of healing, of restoration, of contemplation, of health, of productivity. The, the, the palette is so broad of how a landscape architect can be a real agent for change in our world. And given the recent issues of public health, racial intolerance, the, the kind of ecological footprint of our world, we have a lot of work to do, but we should be heartened by the fact that we have powerful tools that we can offer in service to these issues for other people to tell their story by the landscape making space for their narrative, to heal damaged ecologies by the landscape re-envisioning and adapting those places that may be damaged, of looking at how we grow our food and becoming an agent for positive change to stop the kind of dichotomy between nature and agriculture, that the two can be harmonious for working hard to assure that public landscapes are protected and remain free and open and accessible to all people at all times. These are just a few of the ways we can apply this powerful toolkit. Our invisibility is often an obstacle to being included in the conversation but that doesn't mean we can't get in there and really make a change in our world. Very well put. Thank you very much. And thanks again for being here today. I really do appreciate that. If anyone wants to learn more about you, the firm, where can they reach you or find more information? At www.nbwla.com. Awesome. I will make sure to include a link to that and a couple of the other things that we discussed in the show notes. Thank you so much, Stacy. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Getting to know Thomas and his passion for the work that his firm is doing gives a great introduction to lesser known aspects of landscape architecture, such as conservation agriculture, sustainable ecology, and post-industrial ecology. If you'd like to learn more about the work Nelson Bird-Waltz is doing, please be sure to visit everythingbutthebuilding.com for a link to their website, along with links to several other projects and items we discussed. 
questions or comments, please visit everythingbutthebuilding.com and leave a message. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send an email at ebtbpodcast at gmail.com. Cover art for the podcast was created by at James E. Butler, and music for the podcast was created by Adam Drakinskis and Dan Ross.